Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode of Word Magazine, I'm going to be offering a long delayed, long postponed rejoinder to a guy named Stephen Steele related to an article that he posted last year on uh, Thomas Goodwin and Codex Alexandrinus and confessional bibliology. So again, in this episode, I want to respond to this blog article that appeared a little over a year ago on the blog gentlereformation.com. Uh, this was published to that blog site, this article, on November the 15th of 2022. And let me just pull up the article. There it is online. And it was titled, A Wits Westminster Divine and an Alexandrian Codex. And again, the author of this article was a fellow named Stephen Steele, who is the minister of the, I think it's pronounced Stranraer uh, Presbyterian Church in Stranraer, Scotland. Um, this post seemed to uh, seems that it's gotten quite a bit of traction. I think a lot of people read it, and uh, they took it uh, as it was intended to be an argument against the confessional text position. And it was even shared back in January of this year, at the beginning of this year, on the evangelical textual criticism. Uh, blog site uh, that was it was posted there by Peter Gurry on January 16 of 2023 uh, under the title A Westminster uh, Divine on Codex Alexandrinus and it starts out back in November a man I've never met named Stephen Steele sent me an article he'd recently written on Friday I finally got around to reading it and commend it to you. Stephen is a minister in Scotland and has an MA on Presbyterian history from Queen's University, Belfast. This article looks at, the, at Thomas Goodwin's engagement with textual criticism and his appeal to the newly known Codex Alexandrinus. Goodwin is especially important because he was a Westminster divine. Here is the key takeaway. And here he has a quote from the end of the article, so-called confessional bibliologists claim to hold the position of the Westminster divines. However, they certainly do not hold the position of leading Westminster divine Thomas Goodwin. It has been said that in the century after Goodwin, the received text was still treated with excessive veneration. It was not actually replaced in England until the 19th century, but events in the scholarly world had been gradually bringing about its decline ever since the arrival of Codex Alexandrinus, or A, in 1627. For an example of a Reformed pastor who gratefully used readings from this newly discovered manuscript in preference to the TR, we can go all the way back to the Westminster divine Thomas Goodwin. So um, this article was praised by Peter Gurry. Uh, here is uh, a Westminster divine who shows by his use of uh, textual criticism 
that he did not hold the position that's being promoted by confessional bibliologists. That would be by people like uh, me. And so over the past year, I have occasionally received texts and emails from folk who have asked me if I would respond to this article. And I did read the article sometime after it came out. At one point, I sat down and wrote down some notes uh, for a response, but I never got around to finishing kind of an article about it. I never got around to recording a podcast uh, on this topic. And I have to say, I found, having read this article, I found it difficult to respond to something like this because I found when I started looking at the citations, especially from Thomas Goodwin in the originals, I found that uh, I thought there was a lot of misunderstanding of Thomas Goodwin. I also thought in the article itself, there seemed to be a lot of confusion about issues related to history, related to Codex Alexandrinus, related to um, textual criticism. There were leaps of logic that I found it it hard to, to follow. And I just thought to respond to an article like this cogently and succinctly would be very difficult to do. And so I kept putting it off and putting off, putting it off. But I thought at some point I got to respond to this, in part because I think there there have been more and more people that I've seen who perhaps have read this article, perhaps been influenced, and I see that other people are beginning what what uh, to put forward what I see are um, improper interpretations of uh, either the Westminster divines or especially the Protestant Orthodox related to. Uh, textual criticism, and uh, they have begun to, to do what Stephen Steele did to say, well, you know, you people who who put who are defenders of the traditional text or the Reformation text or the confessional text, uh, uh, you're actually not giving us something that's in line with some some of what the men of that era were saying with respect to the text. It seems, if I could summarize the main thesis of Stephen Steele's article, is that the Puritan uh, uh, divine Thomas Goodwin, who lived from 1600 to 1680, did not hold to the confessional text position. And according to um, um, Steele, uh, this is shown by the fact that uh, he embraced readings from supposedly from Codex Alexandrinus, a manuscript, uh, an unsealed manuscript uh, that was published uh, in the 17th century, and that represents what modern textual critics would call uh, Alexandrian text type in certain places, according to Steele. And so he points in particular in this article to several passages that he has found in the 12 volumes of Thomas Goodwin's collected works um, that uh, he, where he says that Goodwin uh, shows um, uh, modern textual criticism, I guess, reasoned eclecticism in such a manner that contradicts the confessional bibliology position. And the four 
passages that he cites as examples in this article are uh, a passage in 1 Peter 5.10, a passage in Acts 11 and verse 20, uh, a passage in Jude 1.1 1, 1, and Ephesians 1.18. And so if, you, if we pull the article back up once again, and you go to towards the end of the article, that's where he has the discussion of these four passages. 1 Peter 5.10, Acts 11.20, Jude 1.1, 1, 1, and Ephesians 1.18. And so uh, what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I might be able to do is offer some responses to this article. It is a relatively short article. But like I said, because I think there's so much so much confusion in it, uh, and I think some misunderstandings of Goodwin in it, 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 it it's going to take some time to offer uh, some cogent responses to it. And so it may take a couple of episodes. And I'm hoping maybe in, in this episode, this is maybe going to be a part one. I don't know when I'll get around to doing the part two, but... But I'm hoping in this episode, I want to do the part one. And, and in this initial response, I want to discuss sort of the beginning of the article and the initial discussion that leads up to his examination of these four texts. And so uh, that's what I'm hoping I'm going to do uh, in, in this initial part one uh, response to Steele's article. Um, needless to say, I do not think that uh, Goodwin's bibliology is in any way a defeater for the confessional bibliology position. If anything, I think, if read with discernment, I think his comments on text generally support the what we could call the confessional text position. So before I begin, um, we're going to read through the introduction to the article. I've got it up here online. I'm not going to take anything out of context. I'm going to walk through it uh, point by point and offer some rejoinders, responses to specific things. But before I do that, I want to share just three initial thoughts and by the way, I've got just a few notes in front of me. I've also got a stack of books that I brought, brought along with me. I'm sitting here in a classroom at the college where I teach, and I've, I've got these books, and occasionally you might see me reach over, grab one of them, um, and turn to a passage and read something. Again, I didn't have the time to, to put this in article form or would have these as quotations in an article. I'm just going to pull the book and read it. Um, but I want to I want to begin with three initial thoughts that I think are important for uh, responding to an article like this one by Steele or an objection by someone who finds a place in either a reformer like John Calvin or Martin Luther or a Westminster divine uh, like Goodwin or a Protestant Orthodox thinker um, like uh, somebody like Perkins or someone like that. Recently, I had someone pulling up a similar type of passage uh, uh, from Perkins. So three things, three initial thoughts, preliminary thoughts. First of all, the first 
uh, thing to, to keep in mind is that the men of the Reformation era and the, and the men who followed after, the, those that are called by Richard Muller, the Protestant Orthodox, they held to what we could call the traditional Protestant text. They held to the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament as the standard for the Old Testament. And they held to what we call the received text or the Textus Receptus as the standard for the New Testament. And um, uh, you, we can see this explained for us. This is the first book I'll pull over in uh, Richard A. Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. And if you look at his entry on uh, page 357 for the term Texas Receptus, now this is received text, this is referring to the Greek received text, the New Testament. And he says there, uh, Texas Receptus, the received text, i.e., the standard Greek text of the New Testament published by Erasmus 1516 and virtually contemporaneously by Jimenez, the Complutensian Polyglot printed in 1514, but not circulated, i.e. published until 1522 and subsequently reissued with only slight emendation by Stephanos 1550, Beza 1565 and Elsevier 1633. The term Texas Receptus comes from the Elsevier preface here in Latin, textum ergo habes nunc ab omnibus receptum. Therefore, you have the text now received by all. Then Muller explains the term was adopted as a standard usage only after the period of orthodoxy. So was it used in by the reformers? Calvin doesn't use the term, for example, but it becomes a term of standard usage only after the period of orthodoxy. Although it does refer to the text supported by the Protestant scholastics as the authentic text, quo ad verba, with respect to the words of the text. And he says, see the term, he explains, autoritas divina duplex. So he says that the Protestant scholastics or the Protestant Orthodox uh, received the Texas Receptus, the received text, as uh, the authentic text, quo ad verba, with respect to its words. And I think he would say the same thing, Muller would say the same thing with respect to the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Old Testament. So um, here's a, an, an expert uh, in the, um, the writings of the Protestant Orthodox, and he says that they received as the standard text, the Texas Receptus. Um, second of three preliminary points. The first one is that the Texas Receptus, the Hebrew Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the Texas Receptus, the New Testament was the received text of the reformers and the Protestant Orthodox. It was the text that they made use of in their scholastic writings. It was the text that was the basis of the great Protestant translations and so forth. And I think that should be historically undisputed. It, it is the, as I uh, recently read in a, the collected writings of Bishop uh, uh, Thompson, it was the Reformation text. Um, second, though, of these three initial points before we get into looking at this article, um, 
the men of the Reformation and the Protestant Orthodox were not always monolithic in their views. And we have never claimed, those of us who hold a confessional bibliology, we have never claimed that these men were monolithic in their views. Um, I've written on John Calvin, still have an interest in Calvin and text. And I wrote a book, an article rather, not a book, but an article uh, on Calvin and text criticism. And I recently did a paper this summer on Calvin's views of text and his commentary on John. And in my article on Calvin and textual criticism, I made the argument that, that we can uh, see development in Calvin's view of text. He started off with a wider view, of, a view of more latitude, and then later the mature Calvin embraced more fully what we know as the received text in his writings and in his commentaries. Um, but we can see some variety uh, in the writings of some of the men of the Reformation and of the Protestant Orthodox. I remember uh, some years back, I attended the uh, Banner of Truth Conference uh, in Pennsylvania. And uh, if you've ever been to a Banner of Truth Pastors Conference, uh, you know that they, that they have a, a, a night where those who, I think it was must have been the first time I'd ever attended, which is maybe back in 2008 or 2009. And you're invited to go uh, and get some nice discounts on books, and they have someone do a talk uh, to the people who are there. And it was Ian Murray was doing the talk, uh, who was, you know, a, a very respected writer, theologian, one of the founders of Banner of Truth. And I remember in that discussion, he said, he, he said he remembered one time when a guy came up to him and said, oh, Dr. Murray, I love Banner of Truth. And he said, I agree with, 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 with every single one of the authors that you have reprinted uh, uh, in Banner of Truth. I agree with all the Puritans. I I'm in complete agreement with them. And Murray <laughs> made the observation that that's very interesting because the Puritans don't always agree with each other. And so we can see someone like Richard Baxter uh, Banner of Truth publishes his book, The Reformed Pastor, had a view on justification by faith and uh, law and gospel that it that was rejected by many other men and rejected by many, uh, a view that's rejected by many contemporary men. So, uh, I mean, they, they, they uh, uh, published the writings of, um, of, of Baptist Puritans and of Presbyterian Puritans who wouldn't agree in their views on baptism. So Murray was just simply pointing out the error of thinking of the Puritans in a monolithic manner. And so we want to make clear that point one is, in general, the Reformed and the Protestant Orthodox accepted the received text, and I think that's indisputable. But secondly, we can find some uh, variety in the ways that different persons wrote about the text of Scripture. Um, I do think there, there was a common Protestant view that seems to be clearly seen in writers like Owen and Francis Turretin and Petrus than Maastricht related to the text of scripture. And I think they represent the confessional bibliology view, but certainly there were people 
uh, who would write things that would be slightly different on different topics. So that's the second point, uh, that although uh, confessional bibliology, uh, the, the men of the Re Reformation era and the, and the, the post-Reformation era uh, embraced the received text of the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek New Testament, that doesn't mean that all, all uh, writers of that period held monolithic views. And along these lines, I would suggest looking at Garnet Howard Milne's book uh, on uh, Has the Bible Been Kept Pure, where he talks about some varieties of views uh, by different persons. The third preliminary point that I would like to make is that the Protestant men were not ignorant of textual variants. Those of us who are in the confessional bibliology camp uh, do not hold that the reformers or the Protestant Orthodox had nothing to say and that they were completely unaware of what we today call textual variants. Uh, certainly, they were aware of textual variants, but there's a question of what import did they give to textual variants, to manuscripts, to readings that were at variance to what we could call the common text or the received text. Along these lines, I was just thinking, let's pull, pull out a, down another book. This is volume 16 of uh, Owen's Collected Works. And in volume 16, there, there are two articles uh, by Owen that I think are really, really important, foundational uh, for establishing, um, I think, the Protestant Orthodox view of scripture. But um, in, in volume 16, one of these articles that's included here by, uh, that's by John Owen is titled Of the Integrity and Purity of the Hebrew and Greek Texts of the Scripture. And Owen wrote this, uh, this, this article or this essay, this little booklet or book, it's really a small book. He wrote it especially in response to the publication of Brian Walton's uh, uh, London Polyglot or Biblia Polyglotta, in which Codex Alexandrinus was published. And, um, and, and he took exception to what he thought was an unhealthy trend among some of his fellow churchmen of that age, including Walton, Brian Walton, in uh, what, what Owen would call piling up these variants. And so he was aware of these. It's not a matter of him not being aware. He was aware of this. But he was rejecting, I think, what, what was the, the, some of the beginnings of what would later become modern textual criticism. Uh, Theodore Letus has an article on this where he talks about um, uh, Owen's uh, work here in this essay being uh, uh, a, a, a forerunner uh, was prescient of raising the alarms and concerns about where uh, what would eventually um, emerge as modern textual criticism. And so on page 363 of this volume 16 of Collected Works, um, Owen says this, that there are in some copies of the New Testament and those 
some of them of some good antiquity, diverse readings in things or words of less importance is acknowledged. The proof of it lies within the reach of most in the copies that we have. And I shall not solicit the reputation of those who have afforded us others out of their own private furniture, that they may, that they have been all needlessly heaped up together, if not to an eminent scandal, is no less evident. Let us then take a little view of their rise and importance. So he's aware of variance, but and he's aware of some of his fellow um, um, Protestant divines. Maybe he was thinking of Thomas Goodwin. I don't know. Maybe of others who have uh, taken them, as he says, out of their private furniture and uh, heaped them up together. And Goodwin thinks, again, sees this as being uh, problematic, primarily talking about Brian Walton and the London Polyglot. But he's maybe talking about some of his fellow divines, too. So, again, these men were not monolithic. And I think Owen um, is uh, a representative of one who's aware of the variants in, and, and sees, though, some dangers in um, in giving overemphasis to variants that uh, um, um, diverge from the common or from the received text. So those three preliminary observations are really important. The Texas Receptus was the text of the Reformation. Secondly, though, all men of that era did not think monolithically, nor did they treat the text always monolithically. Although I, I, I think there was a, a really a vast general agreement. We're going to see it even in Goodwin. And then, and then thirdly, they certainly were not unaware of textual variants. And so just because you see discussion of textual variants in men of this era doesn't mean that they were embracing what we know today as modern uh, reasoned eclecticism. So with those preliminary thoughts out of the way, let's turn and let's look at the introduction to this article uh, by uh, Stephen Steele. And again, notice that it's titled A Westminster Divine and an Alexandrian Codex. So it's, it's going to be about Thomas Goodwin and about Codex Alexandrinus. So here we go. Let's see if we can uh, get started on the article. He says, at the heart of the critique of modern Bible versions by some in the Reformed world is their assessment of the Greek manuscripts on which they are based. So it's interesting that he starts off talking about uh, those who critique modern Bible versions. And there is a place for the for the critique of modern translations in English or in other languages. But as we've said many times, more fundamental is the issue of what is the proper text. And often we get this, uh, this uh, response from critics of our position who want to talk about our critique of translations before they talk about our critique of what's happened with the modern critical text. There's another presupposition in here that our critique of modern translations or 
perhaps modern texts underlying this, uh, is based on an unwillingness to assess uh, the Greek manuscripts on which modern translations are based. And I would say that's not true. That's precisely our criticism of many modern translations is on the modern critical texts on which they are based. He continues, all major English Bible versions, and he's going for translations, not texts, since 1881, apart from the New King James Version, have made use of Greek manuscripts which are not, which were not available to the editors of the, in parentheses, Texas Receptus, the family of printed Greek editions, which mostly lie behind the King James Version. And again, um, he's still talking about English Bible versions rather than um, the, the matter of text. There's some factual errors in this. He says only the New King James Version, that's the only uh, translation since 1881 uh, that uh, is based on the received text, and that's not true. The modern English version also, also is largely based upon the TR. Uh, so um, the NKJV would not be the only one. So that's just a little factual mistake here. But also, more importantly, again, there's a confusion about he wants to talk about the King James Version and not talk about uh, and talk about versions and translations rather than talk about text. And he also has an assumption here that anyone who defends the traditional text is not willing to countenance um, new uh, or modern um, um, manuscript discoveries, so-called, really, it's often uh, new manuscripts being printed and published. Codex Vaticanus has been known for 500 years. It just didn't begin to be published until the 19th and on into the 20th century. Um, as I've often said, and I think I've, I've shown in places like my uh, article on John Calvin and text criticism, the old writers were generally aware of all the major textual differences that we talk about today. Um, it's a bit like Solomon's statement, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, the discovery of the papyri in the 20th century hasn't really changed very much the content of the modern critical text. The, the, uh, the modern critical text that, that arose with Westcott and Hort in the 19th century came mainly on the publication of unsealed manuscripts like Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, but most of the variants, like the ending of Mark, the woman taken in adultery, uh, controversy of the Coma Ioanneum, all these things were well known by men of the Reformation era. All you have to do is go through Calvin's commentary, and you'll see that he makes reference and acknowledges most of the major uh, textual variants that are talked about today. Um, but it's it's those who are advocates of the modern critical text and modern translations based upon them, they want to argue for their position often based on the fact that we've got all these wonderful new discoveries. But the truth is that most of these things were known about long ago. They were rejected uh, for use by the reformers and by the Protestant Orthodox. But let's continue. Uh, he, this is the third paragraph. Because these manuscripts were not available to TR editors in the 16th century, 
And because the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches that God's word has been kept pure in all ages, chapter 1, paragraph 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the assertion is made that these manuscripts must be rejected where they disagree with the received text, as if this is a kind of novelty. And again, we're saying, actually, these variants were known by the men of the Reformation era and the post-Reformation era. And so it's not a new thing that, the, that those who hold the received text, the Reformation text, or the common text, or the traditional text, or the confessional text, that we would reject uh, the readings that are represented by manuscripts like Sinaiticus Vaticanus. It's not a novelty. This was being done. Uh, we are in continuity with the men of the Reformation era. He continues. But how would the Westminster divines have reacted to new discoveries of Greek manuscripts, manuscripts which only became available to scholars after the King James Bible was published? Again, his interests and fascinations with the King James Bible of 1611. But again, these issues related to text were long settled uh, even before the King James Version was translated. Actually, the King James Version and its translation choices related to text were already evident in 1525 in Tyndale's translation of the Bible from the Greek received text into English for the first time. And so it's not a matter of the King James Version. It's a matter of the traditional re or received text or Reformation text that uh, there was already a consensus uh, in receiving that uh, even long before the King James Version, for example, uh, as a translation was made. He continues, but how would the Westminster divines uh, have, oh, sorry, I already read that, didn't I? Um, so his question, I guess, is, is it's a hypothetical. Would the rest, Westminster divines have changed their view on text if they had access to what many moderns say are the embarrassment of riches that we now have? Again, I'm making the counterpoint that they were already aware of these variants and they were already aware of uh, of these variants, but they rejected them. Um, he continues, would the divines have rejected them as suspect or even satanic? That seems to be a little jibe at the, um, the why I preach from the received text article that uh, some unfairly criticized because the author had the audacity to say that if you offer a text that is not the authentic text that that is that is wrong and even satanic, and um, I think that if we're offering a text that is not uh, the received text, that is not the original, then yes, it is wrong, and there's nothing wrong with opposing that um, plainly. At any rate, would they have resisted all efforts to correct the received text? based on discoveries of manuscripts which were much older than those available to Erasmus and the other TR editors. And so again, he's building here a hypothetical uh, that 
the uh, the modern or, or the, the Westminster divines, if they had access to our embarrassment of riches, would they really have resisted uh, uh, efforts to change the text, to modify the text? And it's an interesting hypothetical question. Um, again, I think it's it's it it's at a question that sort of um, um, I don't know goes up to the edge of committing an error of anachronism. Uh, it's a what if game. What if they had access to modern textual criticism? These were men of the pre-critical era. These were men of the pre-enlightenment era. And, uh, and 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 I might play this this uh, this game in a different way. I might say, what if Bruce Metzger had lived before the time of the Enlightenment? What if Bruce Metzger had been had been trained in a Catholic small C understanding of the sacred text, and had not been influenced by modernism and the historical critical method as it developed in enlightenment uh, and post-enlightenment universities, would he then have accepted the received text rather than the reconstructed modern critical text? Well, it's, it's an interesting hypothetical to ask. Um, I, I, I think that it's an anachronistic question. We know what they did. They were aware of the variants. They rejected them, and they affirmed the received text. And they saw that text as equivalent to the original when they had uh, printed editions of the faithful copies as they saw them. They believed that they were holding in their hands the original autographs, and they believed that that word was the word of God, which had been kept pure in all ages. They believed in inspiration, the immediate inspiration of the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek, and they believed in the preservation of the scriptures. So he's going to proceed and say this. In the case of the Westminster Assembly's fifth most prolific speaker, we don't have to guess. This is where we get Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin 1600 to 1680, delivered approximately 400 speeches at the Westminster Assembly, was appointed to 35 committees, respected by the Scottish commissioners, and given oversight of printing of the Assembly's papers. While he is sometimes described as the first Congregationalist, Goodwin is more accurately remembered as one of the last the Puritans. He continues, Goodwin was also one of those appointed by the Puritan-dominated Long Parliament to oversee the revision of the King James Bible in 1653, something that he had been called by called for by Westminster divine John Lightfoot in a sermon to the House of Commons in 1645. Others involved in the project included fellow Westminster divines Joseph Carlyle and William Greenhill, along with John Owen. However, the attempted revision did not survive the death of Oliver Cromwell and the restoration of Charles II. Interesting historical point. What he's trying to do is build up the bona fides of Thomas Goodwin um, to say that Goodwin was an important person. He was he was valued uh, by the Westminster divines. And let me just let me just pause here for a moment because again, his thesis is going to be 
He's going to tell us Goodwin did not hold the same view as the Protestant Orthodox. And therefore, um, the Protestant Orthodox did not hold to the confessional bibliology position. And he wants to build up the bona fides of Thomas Goodwin. Um, but, but as a, just a counterweight to that, I would suggest uh, the writings of another Westminster divine, and that would be Thomas Manton, uh, who was one of the clerks of the Westminster Assembly. And I've cited this, this passage a number of times. I hate to, to bring it up again, but, but, but if we want to see what the Westminster divines thought about Scripture and what they knew about the text of Scripture, I recommend um, uh, Thomas Manton's commentary on James, which has been republished by Banner of Truth. And he's talking about the book of James, acknowledging that the book of James, among some of the Protestants, uh, early Protestants like, like Luther, there were questions raised about the canonicity of the book. And in his preface to the whole epistle, his commentary on the whole epistle, page 10 of this book, uh, he says this. He says, now it would exceedingly furnish the triumphs of hell. Of hell. Oh, my goodness. He's, he's using black and white language, saying it would furnish the triumphs of hell. It would be satanic. Hmm. It would exceedingly furnish the triumphs of hell if we should think their private cavils against James, the book of James, that's canonicity, to be warrants sufficient to weaken our faith and besides disadvantage the church by the loss of a most considerable part of the canon. In other words, he says it would furnish the triumph of hell. It would be satanic if some were to succeed in taking the book of James away from God's people. But he doesn't stop there. Listen to what he says next. He says, for the case doth not only concern this epistle, but diverse others as the second of Peter and the second and third epistles of John and the book of Revelation. So he says, not just James, but other books have been challenged on canonicity like second uh, Peter, like second and third John and Revelation. But it doesn't stop there. Listen to what he says next. He says also, in addition to those books, the last chapter of Mark, Thomas Manton writing this commentary. When did he write it? Let me look at the, at, at the preface here. It was written in 1693, first published in 1693. might have been written earlier than that, but first published in 1693. Um, he, he knew about problems, challenges to the traditional ending of Mark. But he says it would furnish the triumphs of hell. It would be satanic if someone were to try to remove the traditional ending of Mark. But it doesn't stop there. He also talks about some passages in the 22nd of Luke, Luke chapter 22, the passages about the angelic appearance and the sweat like great drops of blood. The beginning of the 8th of John, the woman taken in adultery. John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Some passages in the fifth chapter or the first epistle of John. He's talking about the coma yoenam, 1 John 5, 7 and 8. And then he says, where would profaneness stay or stop 
And if this liberty should be allowed, the flood of atheism stop its course. So Mr. Steele is trying to tell us, well, Thomas Goodwin, he was the fifth most quoted Westminster divine. Thomas Manton was one of the, one of the clerks at the Westminster Assembly, and he's defending what we know as the confessional text. Um, well, let's, let's go on. Let me return to the article. Let's get back to Goodwin. Okay, we grant you, Goodwin was an important figure. We're not going to argue against that. Now he's going to turn, and again, this is the introduction to the four, four, four verses, four verses in 12 volumes of Goodwin's writings. You can judge for yourself how weighty this so-called evidence is. But here in the preface, he's going to turn to something that Goodwin wrote in a book that was called The Glory of the Gospel that appears in volume four of his works. And, and, and we're going to look closely at this because I think, if I can charitably suggest, I don't think that Mr. Steele properly represents what Goodwin was saying in The Glory of the Gospel. So I don't think in the end Goodwin is, is quite the witness that Mr. Steele says that he is. But first of all, let's let's listen to what he says. And then we're going to look at good what Goodwin actually wrote. And you can judge whether you think he has accurately presented the views of Thomas Goodwin. All right. So let me let me just read a little bit of this before we turn to the primary work. Here's his secondary analysis. He says. In a posthumously published work, so after his death, this was published, The Glory of the Gospel, Goodwin is enthusiastic both about the theoretical and actual discovery of ancient Greek manuscripts. Commenting on Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, which had been hidden from ages and from generations, Goodwin gives the following illustration. Now, I want you to pause here. This is going to be important. Remember this. He's saying that in this work, talking about Colossians 1.26, that Goodwin is expressing primarily enthusiasm about the theoretical and actual discovery of ancient Greek manuscripts. When we look at, the, look at what Goodwin actually wrote, I want you to assess whether you think that's a, that's a fair assessment of what Goodwin actually wrote and what he, was, what he really cared about. We're going to look at it. Okay, but let's listen to what he says. Let's, let's give him a chance here. Uh, here he quotes Goodwin. He, Goodwin gives this illustration. To have an old copy of the New Testament, though it doth not differ three words throughout the whole from what we commonly have, yet if it be an old copy, as lately one of the Septuagint, written 1,300 years ago, was sent over, what a value is there set upon it? So he's, he's got this statement out of context. Don't people get excited when there is an old copy of the New Testament, though it differs not three words from the common copy. And he talks about a recent discovery of the Septuagint. Okay. He also uses the illustration of scholars finding manuscripts by a church father, the rediscovery of the book of Enoch, quoted by Jude, rumored to have been found in Goodwin's day, but not actually rediscovered until 1773, and the discovery of Solomon's writings on herbs and plants. Um, however, as the editor of Goodwin's work, 
works notes what the Puritans at that point in his life thought to be only an old copy of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually turned out to contain the New Testament as well. Goodwin's editor says that the author is doubtless referring to the famous Alexandrian manuscript, which was sent from Constantinople as a present to Charles I in 1628. Remember that quotation because Mr. Steele only gives part of that quotation, we'll see in just a moment, and what he leaves out is really important and really damning for a lot of what he says in this article. But we're going to look at it. We're going to look at the full quotation. Um, today, we call it Codex Alexandrinus, an almost complete copy of the New Testament from the 5th century. It was sent to England by the Calvinist Patriarch of Constantinople 16 years after the publication of the King James Bible and originally intended for King James himself. Again, here's his fascination with the King James Bible. Uh, the King James Bible... Uh, as I recently read in a, uh, in a little article by Bruce Metzger, one third of it is is directly in the New Testament, is directly taken from Tyndale, and the other two thirds is based basically on the structure of Tyndale. So the, the watershed was not the King James Bible with respect to text. The watershed was the emerging of the printed edition of the Greek New Testament that started with Erasmus and went up through the Protestant editors like Stephanos and Beza and the Elzevirs. And so the watershed was not the King James Bible. It was the, the, the early printings that became the received text, as El, the Elzevirs will call them. And they were the basis for all the English translations, starting with Tyndale, the New Testament, and going on up uh, to the authorized version in 1611. All right, so, but he's just told us this is his preface to these four verses he wants to look at, that Goodwin was both uh, excited about theoretical manuscript discoveries and actual manuscript discoveries. And he says he was really excited about Codex Alexandrinus. Now, let's look at what Thomas Goodwin actually wrote. And so, uh, oops. Yeah, this is it. This is from uh, volume four of uh, Goodwin's collected works. And this is from the work, The Glory of the Gospel. And the quotation that he pulls from is from chapter three. And it is a, a sermon, or I don't know if it was a sermon or a theological treatise on Colossians 126 which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, etc., And it's titled, Another Demonstration of the Excellency of the Gospel that is a secret mystery, a hidden and concealed wisdom. So the thing that we need to understand, first of all, is that this writing by Thomas Goodwin is not about the text of Scripture. It's about the gospel. And it's about the gospel that was a hidden and secret mystery that is now revealed. And I think he was talking both about, in the context of Colossians, how the gospel, as, as Paul will call it in Ephesians, it's a mystery that's been hidden, that, that the gospel is for the Gentiles and not just for the Jews. But I also think probably in context, he's talking about the Reformation. He's talking about how the gospel had been, had been hidden and now in the Reformation, post-Reformation era, 
it has been uncovered and it has been revealed. So let's go, let's go uh, ahead and we're going to move forward in the discussion of Colossians 1.26 to the passage that he cites or makes reference to. It's on page 288. And we're going to read what he actually says there on pages 288 and 289, because he's told us he's used the citation of this passage as evidence of the fact that Thomas Goodwin was excited about the theoretical and actual discovery of manuscripts. And I just want to tell you that my counter thesis, based on what Goodwin actually wrote, is that he's talking about the gospel, and he only uses references to the discovery of manuscripts as an illustration of the discovery of the gospel. But let's read especially, let's read all here what he, what he said that Mr. Steele quotes in part. So here's what Goodwin actually wrote. This is in volume four of his collected works, which contains the book, The Glory of the Gospel, pages 288 and 289. He writes, Is the gospel thus a hidden wisdom, hidden from ages and from generations? Again, his focus is on the hiddenness of the gospel. This should cause us to value and put the highest worth and esteem upon it. Almost all other considerations that should move us to it, this is not the least. We see the greatest wits of the world and the greatest understandings have still been taken with antiquity with any learning and knowledge that is ancient, especially when it is hidden too. So now he's going to give an illustration. The gospel has been hidden and now it's revealed. And here's an illustration. There are people who get excited about things that were ancient that are rediscovered. And he's going to give... I'm going to suggest five illustrations uh, based on things that were hidden that have been revealed. And so he starts off, the first one is actually about church fathers. So he says, how do men prize an old copy of a father, a church father, as they are called, which hath lain hidden in some hole in a manuscript and is now revealed. Don't they get excited when they find an old copy of a church father that was in some manuscript in a hole and they're excited about it? That's what it's like to discover the gospel, which was hidden. He continues, how doth a great scholar value such a thing? They think it a glory to be the publisher of such a thing, a church father manuscript. To have an old, here's a second illustration. First was the church father. Second is a, a, a copy of the New Testament. To have an old copy of the New Testament, though it doth not differ three words throughout the whole from what we commonly have. Now, his second is, a, a, a manuscript of, New, of a church father, a manuscript of the New Testament. But notice what his presupposition is, that if you have an old copy of the New Testament, it does not differ three words from the copy that is commonly used. 
You see, he's not talking here about discovering a manuscript of the New Testament and then using its content to reconstruct, to critique the common text. He's saying that these discoveries don't, there aren't any significant variants from the common text. So this is actually proving quite the opposite of what Mr. Steele would propose. The third illustration he has is from what he perceives to be a copy of the Septuagint that has been discovered. Church Father, New Testament, Septuagint is the third example. Yet, if it be an old copy, as lately one of the Septuagint written 1,300 years ago was sent over, what a value is there set upon it? So, if the gospel has been hidden and it's rediscovered by men today, how excited are they? Are they like a men who find an old copy of the church father or we find an old copy of the New Testament, though it doesn't differ much from the common text, only three words different. We can quickly tell which what those variants are and we can pr prefer the common text to it. Or if we find an old copy of the Septuagint, how happy people are. Now, notice the footnote here. This is, this is included by the editors who published Goodwin's works. Okay, the footnote here says that his reference to the Septuagint here is doubtless the famous Alexandrian manuscript, which was sent from Constantinople as a present to Charles I, to King Charles I in 1628. Now, that's what um, Mr. Steele quoted. But notice he did not quote the rest of this footnote, which is very, very important. Check for yourself. Look at the article, see what he quoted, and see what he left out. Uh, let's just go back. Let's look. Um, <laughs> yeah, here's this quotation. Um, <laughs> Goodwin's editor says that the author is doubtless referring to the famous Alexandrian manuscript, which was sent from Constantinople as a present to Charles I in 1628, end quote. What does he leave out? Goodwin, here's what he left out. Goodwin was not aware that it contains the New Testament, as well as the Septuagint version of the Old and it tells you this is a note from the editors. So what they're saying is that, and, and this was published after Goodwin's death. So the editors here seem to think that either when he wrote the glory of the gospel, and maybe throughout his entire life, he never realized that Codex Alexandrinus contained not just the Septuagint, but also the New Testament. And, and, and so what does this tell us? This undermines completely this entire article. The editors tell us it seems like Thomas Goodwin didn't, wasn't even aware that Codex Alexandrinus had the New Testament within it. And so all this argument about how he used Codex Alexandrinus and he had access to it through Walton's uh, London Polyglot seems by the editors of his collected works to be a pipe dream. This is this undermines completely his entire argument. But getting back to the context here of this article, what this is really about is a, an illustration 
of how wonderful it is to discover the gospel. This isn't about textual criticism. It's about the gospel. That's what Colossians 1.26 is about, the, the hidden gospel. And this reference to the Septuagint, which is Codex Alexandrinus, is actually just the third illustration of the wonder of discovering something ancient that was hidden, whether it's a church father, whether it's a New Testament copy, whether it's uh, the Septuagint. He continues, here's this fourth illustration. If the prophecy of Enoch, uh, which Jude quoteth, and such a thing they say is extant in Africa. So his fourth example of something hidden being revealed is uh, the book of Enoch, which is quoted in Jude, uh, I think it's verses six and seven. And uh, this is the, the, the Enoch uh, of um, Genesis chapter five and verse 24, who walked with God and was not, for God took him, the seventh from the line of Adam through Seth. And Goodwin is saying that this book of Enoch had been discovered in Africa. And there's a note here by the editors with this little cross. We can read it. The book, whoops, sorry, let's go back up. Whoops, sorry, we jumped way ahead. I mean, if you'll be patient with me, let me work our way, let's work our way back to page 288 and 299. Sorry, I stumbled in with uh, clicking too, too far forward. You'll be patient with me for just a second. I'll find it if I can. And it's going to be hard because the quotation is on page. Yeah, okay, here it is. The book, which was long believed to be extant in Africa, was at length found, and I'll go to the bottom of the next page, by the traveler Bruce, who brought home three copies of it in the Ethiopic language. It was edited by Archbishop Lawrence and published in 1821. It is clearly proved not to be the book of the prophet Enoch, but the production of a Jew of that name who wrote uh, not earlier than the middle of the second century of the Christian era. So he, for our purposes here, his fourth illustration of something ancient that was thought to be lost, but is uncovered and revealed, which brings great joy, is the book of Enoch, although he may have been mistaken about when the book of Enoch was discovered. Um, so, but he says of, again, for his illustration of how great it is to discover the gospel, if this book of Enoch were to be found, how would it be valued? If it were common here, how would it be esteemed? And then his fifth and final illustration is uh, something from the writings of Solomon. Solomon, you know, wrote of herbs and plants from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. If these books that are lost were now found, what a price would we set upon them? Here is a hypothetical. What if we had those books uh, of herbology that Solomon wrote? Wouldn't we be so excited to discover this? But again, these are just illustrations relating to the gospel. This is not about textual criticism. This is not about restoration of manuscripts. This is an illustration used by a preacher to illustrate how great it is to discover the gospel uh, that has been hidden for long ages. And so he continues, just so we are clear about this, 
He says, oh, my brethren, a far greater than the wisdom of Solomon is here and far more ancient. For here is the wisdom that was hid in God from ages and generations, even before the world was, which lay at the bottom of his heart, which are the deep things of God. Here is a whole addition, for so the gospel is of a new testament, of a new knowledge of God in comparison of what the fathers had here is the wisdom of God himself, which was kept close from the Gentiles, from all nations, 4,000 years, kept hid from Adam in innocence. He kept hid from angels, kept hid from all that his own spirit even searcheth into these deep things of God. How should this wet our souls to be skillful in and to study this gospel and to know all the secrets of it, to seek unto God for that holy and blessed spirit who writ this word and hath hid therein all the treasures of knowledge which are to be revealed to us. This did commend it to the primitive times. Paul still in all his epistles, as you have seen in that of Romans, in that of Colossians, in that of Ephesians, in that of the Corinthians, makes it a mighty matter that unto them this gospel was revealed, that was hid before, that God hath broken, broke up a new treasury, not of notional divinity, but of the knowledge of himself, and even the mystery of the Father and of Christ, as it is called in Colossians 2, 1. So friends, clearly, Thomas Goodwin is not writing here about textual criticism. He's not writing about how wonderful it would be to rediscover manuscripts to reconstruct the text of Scripture. He's writing in context about the hiddenness of the gospel. And Mr. Steele is inappropriately taking these quotations about manuscripts out of context to make his point. And oddly enough, Someone like Peter Gurry doesn't understand that. He posts it to the Evangelical Textual Criticism blog um, without properly examining, I think, the context of what was being said in, in these quotations. Um, let me, let's go back to um, the article though, and let's continue our uh, reading of it if we can. Let's see, all right. Let's continue, although I've kind of shown now that the quotations he's given from the glory of the gospel are uh, incorrect. And I think, again, most stunning of all is, remember, what's the title of this, of this whole article he's given us? A Westminster Divine and an Alexandrian Codex. Well, the editors of Goodwin's collected works say that, that Goodwin didn't know that Codex Alexandrinus even had the New Testament in it. So this just completely sinks the whole thesis. Um, let's continue, though. He says, um, mm -hmm. he talks about, let me just, let's talk a little bit about the background of Codex Alexandrinus. It is kind of fascinating. Uh, Codex, Alexand Codex Alexandrinus is in the British Library uh, in London, and I've had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to look at it through the glass there. It's interesting because it was given by the uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, Patriarch of Constantinople, Cyril Lucar, uh, to King Charles in 1627 or 1628. The Goodwin uh, notes said 1628, but I've also seen 1628, but I've also seen 1627. But here's something interesting to note. It had been brought to um, from Alexandria to Constantinople 
by Cyril Lucar in 1621. And as we're going to see here, as we continue to read this, this article by Stephen Steele, he's going to talk about it being from Alexandria and seeming to, 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 to read a lot of his significance into that. But actually, the provenance of Codex Alexandrinus is unknown. And if you if you look it up on the website of the British Library, it lists the, the provenance as simply the Eastern Mediterranean. It doesn't say its provenance is Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, it, at one point, it had been in Alexandria, but I, I, I don't have the book in front of me, but I recently read uh, B.H. Streeter's book on the four gospels. And I think in that book, he says, that it may have been, Alexandrinus may have been composed at, uh, copied at Mount Athos in Greece. It may have been copied in Constantinople. Um, but no one, I think, would say, could certainly definitively say that it was produced in Alexandria, Egypt. And um, uh, uh, Stephen Steele uh, seems not to get that. Then it, then it was published again, by the Anglican Bishop Brian Walton uh, as the Biblia Polyglotta, along with other um, documents. It was published with them as in a document known as the London Polyglotta multi-volume um, edition of the Bible that was produced between 1654 and 1657. Um, let's, let's, go about, let's go on, though, and Let's continue the rest of this introduction leading up to the four passages, which we'll eventually also look, look at, God willing, in future um, episodes in this series. So he continues, along with Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, and Codex Ephraim Rescriptus, it is one of only four manuscripts from the first millennium that were originally whole Bibles. And... So now he's going to talk about the significance of Codex Alexandrinus. It is significant. That statement, though, is not exactly right. We, it should include the word extant. There were many more than four manuscripts from the first millennium of the Bible, but it's a matter of which ones are still extant. Um, he, he says, in the Gospels, it is the oldest example of the Byzantine text but in the rest of the New Testament, quote, it ranks along with Vaticanus and Sinaiticus as representative of the Alexandrian type of text. And I think that quotation, footnote five, is probably from Metzger. Let me look. Uh, yeah, it, Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman, text of the New Testament is transmission, corruption, and restoration, Oxford, 2005, page 67. So um, he has this, this point that he's making here about it being a very important early unseal. I, I just want to make an observation, though, on this. And it's another matter. Like I said, there's so many things that are said in this that it's, it's hard to chase down all the things, and it's time-consuming to chase down all the things that I think are, are misrepresentations or slight misrepresentations. Codex Alexandrinus is important, and it is interesting that it, it, in the Gospels, it does generally support the traditional text, the traditional text, the TR generally supports it. But he makes this statement drawing on Metzger and then Ehrman's um, um, co-editing of Metzger's book on New Testament textual criticism. 
that it, it is representative of the Alexandrian text type in the so-called rest of the New Testament. But some of you may know that with the advent of the coherence-based genealogical method, modern scholars are no longer talking about text types. And this is also another oddity of modern textual criticism. The so-called text types uh, that were developed uh, going all the way back to Bengal and then were taken up by Westcott and Hort were largely taken from the supposed differences in the gospels. But several modern scholars have pointed out that the whole issue or the whole category of text types in uh, New Testament books outside the Gospels is, is particularly inappropriate. And, and I want to, let me just read, um, let me just pull down another book here. And this is uh, David C. Parker's book, Textual Scholarship and the Making of uh, the New Testament. This is from his Lyle Lectures in 2011. And on page 161 in footnote 31, he says the following. He says, it is quite strange that New Testament philology drew up a concept of text types based upon the Gospels and then assumed that it applied to the entire corpus of writings, even though it has always been widely acknowledged that the text types of the Gospels could not be shown to exist in other parts of the New Testament. Thus, we have worked with a very incomplete and unproven system and, in effect, tried to reconstruct the oldest recoverable forms of the writings without having a sound methodology for doing so. So here's mainstream, highly influential New Testament textual scholar, and he's saying not only is the whole idea of text types wrong, but the whole idea of text types were taken from the Gospels and then misapplied to the rest of the New Testament writings. And I just point that out to say that basically Mr. Steele here is propagating an idea that David C. Parker says is passe. Um, this idea that there are text types, there's an Alexandrian text type, and the Codex Alexandrinus has a Byzantine text type in the Gospels, but has, but has an, a different text type, an Alexandrian text type in the Pauline Epistles, Catholic Epistles of Revelation. Parker's saying that uh, is not based on any um, accurate analysis evidence or information all right but let's just let's continue um hmm. so he says uh, uh here we go of course goodwin referring to codex alexandrinus is one thing but would he have used it to correct the received text when the westminster divine said that the greek new testament had been kept pure in all ages did they mean that the Textus receptus first published 1516 could not be questioned Again, this, these kind of things are so hard to respond to because they're, they're so confusing. No one in our camp is, is saying you can't ever criticize printed editions. Actually, the 1516 printed edition of Erasmus, we, we would not hold to because it omits the comioneum. So this is a straw man argument. And the issue isn't printed editions. The issue is God's preservation of the text. Um, the, the issue is not the medium through which the text is preserved, but God's preservation of the text. And again, we've got whole problems here. He's assuming Goodwin knows Codex Alexandrinus. His editors say he didn't even know it. Um, 
And he and we've got we've got his own words saying he thinks if there was a New Testament copy found, there wouldn't be three words difference from the common text. Uh, and, and we've got this whole hypothetical thing going on, which I've already talked about. Let's continue. After all, does Goodwin not use the example of a hypothetical New Testament manuscript that doth not differ three words through the whole from what we commonly have? Yes, he used that, but that doesn't prove your point. It disproves it. He assumes that any manuscript found in the New Testament would not disagree in three words from the common text. But what if it did differ? Would he have rejected it as untrustworthy? Yes, he would have, I would say. Just like um, Thomas Manton uh, in his commentary on James rejected those who would try to remove the book of James or those who would try to remove the traditional ending of Mark. And would he have considered the mention of textual variance from the pulpit as endangering his hearer's faith? Um, well, if he's like Manton, who's also a Westminster divine, he, he said it would triumph, it would furnish the triumphs of hell uh, if this were to take place. And along these lines, let me just pause here for another moment. Let me let me pull another book. Let me pull again uh, from from uh, John Owen, and uh, let me look again at. Uh, a selection from um, uh, his volume 16 of his collected works. And this is from uh, another article that he has uh, in uh, here. Actually, it's from the same one I cited before, from Of the Integrity and Purity of the Hebrew and Greek Texts of the Scripture. And just let me just recall once more, what did, what did Mr. Steele just say? He just said, um, would... Would Thomas Goodwin have thought, would have considered the mention of textual variants from the pulpit as endangering his hearer's faith? Well, um, I'm not sure if we can say exactly what Thomas Goodwin would say about that, but we can say what, Tom, what John Owen would say about that. And this is from page um, 252 and 253, sorry, 352 and 353 of uh, Owen's collected works. And he's talking about uh, Brian Walton's London Polyglot. And he says, the voluminous bulk of various lections as nakedly exhibited seems sufficient to beget scruples and doubts in the minds of men about the truth of what hath been hitherto by many pretended concerning the preservation of scripture through the care and providence of God. So introducing all these variants, Owen says, is prone to beget scruples and doubts in the minds of men. And yes, he is concerned about that. He's concerned about anyone who would preach or talk about these things from the pulpit. So he continues. He said, had the opinion about them been kept in the ordinary sphere of men's private conceptions and their own private writings, running the hazard of men's judgments on their own strength and reputation, I should not, from my former discourse, have esteemed myself concerned in them. In other words, if they, if these scholarly men had known about these differences and simply kept this as a matter of their private conceptions without trying to make a point with it, with the publication and its dissemination of them, he wouldn't have written this booklet. But because they have, he is writing this book. And so he says, this is uh, towards the end of this, he says, I cannot but look upon them, meaning the piling up of these variants in the London polyglot, as an engine 
suited to the destruction of the important truth before pleaded for, and as a fit weapon into the hands of men of atheistical minds and principles, such as this age abounds with all, to oppose the whole evidence of truth revealed in the scripture. I fear with some, either the pretended infallible judge of the depths of atheism will be found to lie at the door of these considerations. Hmm. Was John Owen concerned about the reckless dissemination of these variants over against the common text? Yes, he said it. He said these things could could lead to scruples and doubts in the minds of men. He says this these things could be weapons in the hands of atheistical men, men of atheistical minds and principles, to to undercut the authority of Scripture. And if John Owen had these types of views, I imagine that probably Thomas Goodwin would have shared. So the answer to his question here, a hypothetical question here is I think, uh, yes, yeah, he would have. Um, let's, let's continue though. In fact, as becomes clear in reference to a number of different biblical texts, Goodwin had no qualms about suggesting there were places where the true text of the New Testament was preserved in an Alexandrian manuscript, completely anachronistic, here rather than in the received text. So he's talking about the four passages. We will eventually look at those. I think we will find some similar misunderstandings of Goodwin's uh, exegesis and analysis. Um, although he, as I said, he might possibly take more liberties than I think someone like John Owen would have, would have in his discussion of these things. Um, after all, as Goodwin explained in a sermon, there are variae lectiones of the New Testament as well as of the old, that is, various readings. So, so again, this is a passage where it's supposed to be shocking, I guess, to us that God that Goodwin acknowledged that there were various readings of the New Testament as well as in the old. And again, go back to my three preliminary points. No one's ever claimed the men of the Reformation, post-Reformation era, were ignorant of variants. But even here, I want to go back and I want to look at what was actually said. He has a quotation. He's got a footnote here. And this quotation comes from a sermon uh, from um, um, Goodwin uh, sermon series through Ephesians. It's in volume one of his collected works. And he's talking about Ephesians 1 and verse 18. And Ephesians 1.18 in the, the authorized version, based on the traditional text, reads the beginning of it. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And so uh, here, is what, um, here is what Goodwin says. Here is first the subject of spiritual knowledge. It is the understanding, the eyes of your understanding. Then he says some copies read it as tes cardias, the eyes of your heart. Now in the traditional text, it reads tes diakonias. So, uh, no, that's not diakonias. Let me see if I can pull it up here for a second. You can look at it. Sorry, Mr. Zoom is not 
agreeing with me here. Yeah, let's pull it up here. Here it is. And it's not, no, it's teis dia noias. Tus ophthalmos teis dia noias humon. The eyes of your understanding. And so that's the, that's the, this is Scribner's TR. And uh, so that's the way that it reads. But so he's talking about that. But he's saying in some copies, rather than dianoios, it reads tes cardias, the eyes of your heart. Then he says there are there are these various readings in the New Testament as well as the Old. That is various readings. The King of Spain's Bible readeth it the eyes of your heart. Ordinarily, we read it the eyes of your understanding. Ordinarily, he says we use the reading is found in the traditional Protestant English translation tradition, the Tyndale Geneva King James tradition. The truth is that the Hebrew word uh, lav or lave heart, lave heart, which signifies heart, the Septuagint usually translated it dianoia, understanding, as Genesis 24, 45. We used to call wise men cordati, and fools in the Latin are called men without heart, that is, without understanding. And it is called applying a man's heart to wisdom. Understanding and a man's heart in the scripture phrase are used both for one. They are both judged, dianoia, cardias, auton, as it's used in Luke 151, the understanding of the heart. So indeed, the words may be read here, which are translated the imaginations of the heart. So, He's saying, yes, there are variants in New Testament manuscripts. But if you read his analysis, what he what he essentially does in the end is defend the traditional translation tradition, which would take Ephesians 1.18 as in the authorized version as the, the eyes of your understanding. And he just says those, those variants that say the eyes of your heart are essentially saying the same thing simply with different words. Um, but, but anyways... <laughs> Um, he doesn't go into much detail here, but when we do, do go into greater detail, we find that that actually he is presenting analysis that is more in continuity with affirming uh, the common text and common translation of it. But let's let's pick his pick him back up here. He says, in other words, all Greek manuscripts of any significant length vary from one another. Again, yes, we know that. The, the 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 reformers knew that any printed Greek text had to choose one reading over another, though we'll though we'll usually list alternatives in the apparatus. Um, well, okay, since infallibility isn't promised to the editor of any printed Greek edition, who claimed this? Who claims infallibility for any printed edition of the Greek New Testament? This is another straw man type of argument. Goodwin had no qualms about opting for readings which are today found in the modern critical text over against the Textus Receptus or the majority text. And again, this is anachronistic. He did not have the modern critical text. He was aware of variants. He discussed them in the example we have from his analysis of Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. He actually is giving a reason why the reading in the common text is appropriate uh, and and doesn't differ in sense or meaning, uh, in content or in in matter, uh, from even the variants a variant uh, cardias that might appear. 
Um, he continues, Goodwin explicitly appeals to Codex Alexandrinus against the TR on at least two occasions, comprising five variants. This is, this is going to relate to the passages that are going to be examined before, but we've already now got a question about this because he says he explicitly appeals to Codex Alexandrinus. But the editors of his collected works say that he wasn't even aware that Codex Alexandrinus contained the New Testament. Who's right? We'll see. On another two occasions, he opts for or considers readings found in Alexandrinus and not the TR without reference to it, or perhaps without knowledge of it. Goodwin likely only had access to readings from Alexandrinus through the publications of Bishop Walton's uh, London Polyglot in 1657. He likely only had it. Did he? I don't know. His editors didn't think he did. Um, so again, this, this undermines the whole the whole premise of this article that somehow Thomas Goodwin was using Codex Alexandrinus. His editors of the collected works thinks he didn't even know that Alexandrinus had the New Testament within it. Who's right? Um, he continues, although Charles I refused urgings to publish Alexandrinus. The English Westminster Notations, first edition published in 1645, refer to it under the name Tekla, sometimes referring its readings to the TR. These references all occur in the notes of Paul's epistles, which are written by Westminster divine Daniel Featley. Interesting historical point, but doesn't really have much to do with this article. While a handful of occasions may not seem like a big deal, TR-only-ism, a pejorative term for confessional bibliology or those who support the Reformation text or the traditional text. We don't use the term TR onlyism, um, but people who are critical of our position and want to use a pejorative term sounds like KJV onlyism, which is not a view we hold, like to use this. Uh, I wish that Mr. Steele would, if he wants to criticize us, use the terminology we use for ourselves. Isn't that fair? Isn't that the fair and charitable and just thing to do? Uh, anyway, those who hold a TR onlyism, the bogeyman of TR onlyism, by definition must reject any reading that didn't make it into certain printed TR editions. Again, the issue is not the medium through which the scripture is preserved. The issue is that God has kept his word pure in all ages. He has kept his word preserved when it was transmitted through handwritten manuscripts and when it was transmitted through uh, modern printed editions, and he's preserving it now when uh, it's being transmitted through digital editions. For them to admit that the TR is less than jot and tittle perfect, or to accept any non-TR reading would be akin to giving up the epistemological foundation of faith and to deny that the Bible has been kept pure in every age. Again, you're confusing the medium through which the Bible is preserved and the preservation of scripture itself in whatever medium the matter and the form or the content, the theology, the doctrines, and the very words are preserved by God. This, we are told, was the position of Westminster divines. As I will demonstrate below, it was not the position, bold, not, the position of leading Westminster divine Thomas Goodwin. Well, we will bring to an end part one of this review of Stephen Steele's uh, 2022 blog article on the gentlereformation.com site. I hope that you've been able to see 
that there are some fundamental problems with this article. And for those of you who've asked me about the article, who've asked me to respond to it, um, I hope you'll see that, that this article is not a defeater for the confessional bibliology position. It does not, this article does not contradict confessional bibliology. What we see quite the opposite is that Thomas Goodwin generally affirms a common text. Uh, we should not confuse Thomas Goodwin's awareness of and discussion of variants with the practice of the reconstructionist uh, reasoned eclecticism of modern textual criticism. Finally, let me just end. Uh, there was there was a, a Bible verse came to mind as I was thinking about this uh, podcast episode, and it's the statement that's made in Proverbs uh, chapter eighteen, verse seventeen, uh, which reads, "For he that is first in his own cause seemeth just." but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. And somebody might read Stephen Steele's article, like Peter Gurry apparently did, and think, oh, wow, this is really great. This really undermines confessional bibliology. Um, but he that is first in his own cause seemeth just or seemeth right, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him out. And I think with a little neighborly searching, we find that that actually uh, there are some major problems in some of the facts and some of the arguments that are being put forward here. And again, it does not undermine the confessional bibliology position of anything. It undergirds it and affirms it. Well, with that, I'm going to bring this long episode to a conclusion. I hope this has been helpful to those who are listening. I'll look forward to speaking to you in the next edition or episode of Word Magazine. Till then, take care and may the Lord richly bless you.